I think if you judge your second product by the metrics and outcomes of the first one, it'll never get any love. It'll never get any coverage, right? You'll never be able to build it. If you try and do too many things at once and transform the company in too many ways at once, you're just going to be peanut buttering. Peanut buttering is the enemy of growth. It's just a way that you never get good at anything else. And so as a one product company, it's really important then to figure out what are the initiatives we have that aren't our main thing and how are we going to measure them and what does success look like and how are we going to treat them differently. Welcome to In-Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on The Review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Today's episode of the In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Adrian McDermott, CTO of Zendesk, a company that builds software for customer service agents and sales teams. Adrian is a Zendesk veteran. He started at the company back in 2010 when they had 50 employees and he was managing a team of 10. Since then, he's led product management and engineering teams as they've gone public and scaled to over 5,000 employees. I really enjoyed this conversation because we got into a wide range of topics around the challenges of scaling startups, from product strategy and go-to-market lessons to his thoughts on hiring engineers and making successful acquisitions. We started off by diving into a common decision point companies face, whether to continue with what's working or try to make a change. Adrian goes much deeper than the what got you here won't get you there advice you hear all the time and shares his own I wish we did that earlier moments from scaling Zendesk. Next, we covered the struggle over balancing resources around exploring new product areas while still continuing to make the central product brilliant. Adrian shares how they used both the Horizons and Zone to Win frameworks while thinking through these issues at Zendesk. Then we got into an interesting discussion around another classic startup dilemma, whether to build or buy. Adrian walks us through the origin stories of several Zendesk products, from the wins to the lessons learned. In addition to sharing his perspective on the role of competition in product strategy, Adrian also offers up his definition of a truly great product and shares his thoughts on getting around those complicated admin pages and usability issues that can plague popular products as they scale. In the back half of our conversation, Adrian shares what he's learned leading both product and engineering teams as well as some of the go-to-market lessons he's picked up along the way, from getting engineers to build empathy for the customer to getting the sales team invested in a new product. We end on team building and recruiting. Adrian's interviewed more than a 1,000 engineers, 
and shares more about how he's approached hiring at different phases of scale at Zendesk. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and now my conversation with Adrian. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I'm super excited for our conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. One of the areas that I thought that might be interesting to start the conversation is sort of on the topic of when to change something when you're operating a business and when to leave it alone. And I'm particularly interested in exploring the idea because you joined Zendesk when it was something like 50 employees over a decade ago, and now the company's something like 5,000 plus employees. And so I assume there's always this strain between keeping things the same or doing the thing that you think made you successful, reassessing priors and sort of changing your mind or changing something in the business. And so curious to hear what you've learned about that. Yeah. The truism you always hear is what got you to 10 million, what got you to 100 million, what got you to 100 million, what got you to a billion. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah, heard that before. But as you look in the rearview mirror, it's rare that you don't think about decisions and say to yourself, oh, we should have done that earlier. We should have done that earlier. Why did I let that go on for so long? Some of that learning is about too much sentimentality, too much desire for stability in the organization. In rapidly growing startups, everything has changed. It's constantly changed in terms of the scale of the application, the scale of new customers, the complexity of new customers. And I think it's easy, it's also somewhat healthy to want to stabilize the team. As an example, those moments when you go from bespoke curation of customers or bespoke curation of your organization into more farming of those efforts, more industrial scale. I've heard people talk about it, how you, as a leader, you have to move from being an individual psychiatrist to a sociologist. We used to hand deliver cakes to customers when they hit a million tickets in the Zendesk platform. And you know, as we've shifted, now we have customers doing a million tickets a day and all these other things. That is not practical anymore. And you have to let these things go. You have to move from people to process. And I think in, the, in your own organization, that becomes very clear. There are those step function moments where you know you're going to add another 100 people. And it's important to add the kind of leaders who can bring those people on and motivate them and drive them and are ready for the next scale of the organization. You try and grow people to do that, but if you're growing too fast, that's a really hard thing to do and you have to bring people in from outside. Another example would be something that was like really tough for us to do is, and that's because we were thinking about our IPO, which was take the mascot that we'd had as a company and the branding. Zendesk was the highly green website company with the laughing monk image and the playful, whimsical, love your help desk branding. It really worked for our early startup customers. The head of customer support for Twitter, I actually met her during my interview process for Zendesk. And she was like, yeah, the thing that really attracted me was sort of the green color on the website. And you guys look like fun. When you're pitching an enterprise story and going for an IPO, you have to think about, is that where we're going to be for the next five, for the next 10 years? Your branding is super important and ours was restrictive. So we killed off that character and we made a change and we built a new brand platform. And that was hard to do because it was so familiar and dear to the employees. I had a wardrobe full of Patagonia fleece that represented that in t-shirts, but for the long term, it was the right thing to do. From a system level, how do you identify when to change something? Particularly, I think it's difficult when it served a purpose and maybe was a tool that helped you get to 10 million or helped you hire great people or what have you. 
Do you think about it at the system level or have a set of frameworks such that you're not constantly wrestling with these things and then looking back and saying, wow, I wish we did that earlier? One of the disciplines I think that's helped, uh, it wasn't a discipline we had early on, but something that's really helped me is thinking about being a little more formal and deliberate as we think about return on investment. When a company gets to a certain size, you get to be very familiar with this because you go through these headcount rituals and headcount allocation and budget allocation is sort of this annual ritual that actually reminds me of a truism about British soccer. Football is a game played by 22 players who run around in tactically adept formations against each other for 90 minutes. And at the end of 90 minutes, you shoot out on penalties and the German team wins. That's football. I think headcount allocation and using ROI justification is the same way. You know, you go through this theater of spreadsheet comparisons and slide deck competitions or whatever, which is basically what they are. And then at the end of it, you know, the CFO gives all the money to sales because they prove that if you add five more feet on the street, you'll get X more revenue. And that's the thing that we should do. I think that's because when we lose in that battle, in some ways, we're failing because we're not thinking about benchmarks against other companies, you know, having the CFO look at where the people are spending and thinking about what kind of company we want to be. And then also thinking about in your own organization, the product organization, what it is that is driving value. As you understand more and are more deliberate about the investments you're making, the ongoing zero-based budgeting, thinking about those investments and the new investments, as you're deliberate, you can make clear choices. And it's a little easier to then say, well, something has to change. We have to go make an acquisition. We have to invest heavily in this area. This product is failing and we either need to do something about it or wind it down. What does the process look like for you all now in terms of looking at investments, getting better at seeing what's working and what's not, and making new bets? And what do you do to avoid the problem where the thing oftentimes with the clearest and or shortest term ROI generally gets capital allocated to it versus things that are more speculative, but that if they do work, they have the chance of providing some sort of outsized outcome? There are tools out there to help you. We definitely started thinking about our investments and strategy in terms of horizons, horizon one, horizon two, horizon three investments, things that are making you money today, horizon one, things that will make you money next year, horizon two, and longish term bets, horizon three, and then you allocate 80, 15, five percent of your revenue to each of the horizons or think about it in different ways, depending on the stage of your company. That was useful for us, but I think it's also... As a framework, it doesn't help you with some of the details. And so lately, we've been using the Jeffrey Moses Zone to Win framework, where you think about there is the performance zone, whether the things that are making you money today and you're going to put all of your effort in, the transformation zone, which are ready to go into the performance zone and build for you, the incubation zone, where you're trying things out, and the optimization zone, where you're basically trying to make the way that you run your business better. What I like about that framework is it forces you to think about the metrics in each of those zones and the objectives of the initiatives in those zones differently. It recommends that you put very few things in the transformation zone so you're not just throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall. When you go from one product to multi-product, you have this transition which is really interesting and you have to learn to do more than one thing at once. And I think if you judge your second product product by the metrics and outcomes of the first one, it'll never get any love. It'll never get any coverage. You'll never be able to build it. If you try and do too many things at once and transform the company in too many ways at once, 
you're just going to be peanut buttering. Peanut buttering is the enemy of growth. It's just a way that you never get good at anything else. And so as a one product company, it's really important then to figure out what are the initiatives we have that aren't our main thing and how are we going to measure them and what does success look like and how are we going to treat them differently? And I think you need to have one thing, which is your transformation thing, which is everyone's going to care about it this year. We're going to really work hard on it and we're going to make it a main motion. Last year for us, that was messaging. We felt like the transition to messaging channels and customer service and in people's lives in general was real and was significant. And so we went out and we acquired a Canadian company, Smooch, which was a CPaaS platform because we needed to inject that DNA and that thinking into the company. We also got amazing technology, but it was it was so much more than that. It was a small company taking over the thinking with this sort of injection of viral DNA that infused all thought and making us think differently about what we did every day. And that's a successful transformation. An unsuccessful transformation is really where you launch a product and you're like, oh, well, it isn't our main product. The support product in our case is generating X amount and growing X fast, right? This thing is a distraction and a pain. These people want marketing help and they want finance help to model everything and blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, why are we doing this? And I think if you're not making it a big thing, because it isn't generating the same revenue or using these unrealistic metrics and goals to measure it, you're going to fail. So right now in our stage, I like zone to one. I think horizon one, two, three is a good way to think about strategy. And then if not either of those things, just writing it down and saying it out loud to each other and making sure you all agree, which is maybe what Zendesk's earliest stage effort was, is incredibly important. You gave one example of these different parts of zone to win. Can you share a little bit more about some of the past examples that fell into each one of those buckets that you outlined? Sure. Yeah. We talked about the transformation zone. I think incubation, we launched a product a long time ago um, called Talk, which is a voice-based contact center. And that product came very much from the incubation zone. We took the Twilio APIs, we figured out what the core things we wanted to do, and we built those things. And over the years, we've built a team around that product. You know, the team is now based in Dublin. We've built up a content farm on the website. We've built up expertise in the area. We've rolled out international numbers, and we've slowly marched from basically an incubated effort that was also sold on the website and rode along into something which is part of the core Zendesk suite through transformation. And now I, I would consider it to be part of our performance zone and sold in that way. We put a decade into it. You know, it's made money all along. It's great. But have people who care about it and run it. I think you can be successful in that way, incubating a product. Other things we've acquired, and those were different things. From a performance zone point of view, if I were to go back in time and have a word with myself, a few years ago, it would be about investments in the performance zone, where a lot of the attention from the board, a lot of the attention in your marketing, a lot of the intention and glory is on the new and interesting stuff. That pulls attention away from your core product. Your core product, you know, in a SaaS business, your customers are paying you to operate every day. In our case, Zendesk support. There were, I don't want to say lulls in investment, but there were times when the noisy neighbors at the edge of the suite were getting more love and more attention, certainly more of my attention than the core. And I think for me, that's one of my mistakes. And refocusing on the core and reinvesting in that, I think, has really helped the business. And it also thinking about it in terms of being in the performance zone has been incredibly important. The efficiency zone, not a place I live very comfortably, to be honest with you. 
as you grow and you look at your CAC, which is a great way to think about the efficiency zone. I'm not getting too involved in accounts payable and how many people we have doing that. But if we look at the cost of acquisition, one of the things we learned in the efficiency zone was that we spend too much time adding the next agent for one of our existing customers. There was a theory that an early revenue officer had that whenever a customer wants to add one seat, even if we're a thousand seat customer, right, relatively skilled customer, and they want to add one seat, we should have a conversation with them. And it's a good opportunity to engage. And that's how we keep the motion of sales going. For most of those things, they just want to hit a button and get that seat. When they want to have a conversation, they want to have a conversation. Mostly that's about operational efficiency and everything else. And we had this project actually to take the price for next agent with all of the discounts that have been applied and everything else out of our Salesforce automation system, out of the way it was obscured in that process and out of conversations into, well, the client just presses a button. And if we, even if we have to figure it out manually, we'll figure it out on the backside. We have a revenue team, whatever, whatever, and it will work, but we can drive a ton of efficiency into that and give time back to our salespeople to go talk to new customers and sell new deals. Yes, you still need to do success with your existing accounts. You still need to engage with them. That was a great learning. And from a revenue point of view, like if you look at the revenue attributed to just being able to hit the button and upgrade, hit the button and add agents, it's huge. It's like probably one of the most successful individual development projects we undertook in the last year. And so when you think about efficiency in that way, it's just It's just really important. It can be transformative for your revenue. Given we're talking a little bit about product strategy, I'm interested in how do you think about the role of competition? And everyone says, oh, just focus on your customer, build what they need, or I'd say more Silicon Valley sort of YC advice. At the same time, you operate in an intensely competitive category, both up market and down market. There's a zillion other things that people can use. And so when you think about what to build or how to build it, how do you think about competition as a stakeholder or constituent? Focus on what you're doing is really great advice. It's the same as my focus on the core, focus on the core, focus on the core, right? Because that's what's paying the bills. But at the same time, Looking at the competition is actually another way of looking at your customers. In our market, we have bigger competition who are really having the conversations in some cases that we want to have, and they're having more of them all the time. And we have smaller competitors that are more agile and more aggressive and potentially moving faster. I look at them as incredibly important research organizations where they're distilling all of the input they get. And you can see the hypotheses that they've built around that in the features they're releasing and then the products they release. And then you will hear from your own customers, your own prospects, what is getting traction with them in terms of the messaging or the capabilities or things that are important. And so I think competition is extremely important because you are generally in our business putting choice in front of customers that comes from Zendesk or one of the others. And each one of those in the long term is an existential conversation for Zendesk. So we have to understand those dynamics. Overly focusing on your competitors' tactics, their position or the market or other things like that can be destructive to the organization. That's not using that information to create. It's a distraction. And I think understanding what is a distraction as you look at them, which is how are they speaking about themselves? You know, what is their takedown competitive page in SEO for you? It's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Those things aren't helping. But if they're launching new capabilities or 
shifting direction in the market, I think you have to think about what your response is going to be. Do we want to follow? Do we think it's important? Or is that unique to them and the way that they think about the market and the business? One of the things we touched on is this really interesting topic of mono versus multi-product and when a company shifts from one to another and when to do it and how to do it. I'm interested both how you approached this over the last decade at Zendesk and maybe what you think you got right or wrong when it comes down to the idea of executing on a multi-product strategy. Transitioning from single to multi or just adding another one, those are difficult decisions. And it's really difficult if you have one scaled product to get the others moving and get them evolved. All software innovation is ultimately, the joke is, bundling and unbundling your packages. And I think bundling second products into what you're doing is a great way to increase your share of wallet and get that product moving and get it into market. There are build partner buy discussions that you have to have and you have to understand long-term what the strategy is going to be. And then there are organizational questions. For us, we had three or four products And actually what had happened was we'd set a goal of getting to a billion in revenue in three or four years. And we did an analysis of our market and we said, okay, if we run a thousand Monte Carlo simulations of trajectories of each of the products that we have, we need a couple of them to get to a hundred million to get to a billion. And so we invested heavily in independent motions for those products as a result. And each one got a GM, a general manager to run it, who had some control over the go-to-market and the business, et cetera. Although we had kind of a monolithic sales force and they did get some overlays and we tried to run the business in that way. Step back now with the benefit of hindsight and look at that effort. I think where you have a different channel or a different economic buyer for a product That actually makes a ton of sense because you have to invent and stimulate a new motion for go-to-market. And you may have product market fit, but you have to really think about how is this go-to-market different? How do we navigate in the org? Versus if you have a single economic buyer and these second products are helping with new use cases, new instances, or just increasing the share and taking it from another partner that they were using for that solution. I think in that case, a GM is possibly a destructive way to run the business. And we collapsed our GMs where they were independent units that just became noise in the organization more than anything else. Because persona-wise, who is the buyer? What are they paying you for? We have to understand that we have a core asset that is the money printing machine, add-ons that go with it, and think about our multi-product strategy in that way. And where it's not like that, where we have a different entry point into an organization, and we're trying to build up our reputation in that entry point, we have to think about what are the cross-sell motions? What are the ways that we can find those use cases in customers? And then adapt the org to be able to build for that. So can you talk a little bit about the story behind the different products that you've launched over the last decade? maybe how you thought about that idea of attaching other products that do different jobs to be done for the same buyer versus the decisions around additional products that maybe had a different buyer or user inside the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first one I already mentioned was Talk. We built on top of other APIs, created a contact center. And if you think about it, certainly at the time, most of our customers were small, medium-sized businesses, maybe lower mid-market. We were their sole customer service or internal help desk. And it was natural for them to want to put a voice extension on that product. And I think, so there it's like same buyer, something which is probably already attached to Zendesk or which they would like to have. 
And so our philosophy was, well, we need to make it super simple to just go into the product and click a button, choose the phone number, and you're up and running with a contact center. You don't have to put in desk phones or anything else. You could basically have it ring your cell phone and do all these other things. When we hit that sweet spot, it just basically worked, right? The idea of I can turn on a cloud contact center in 30 seconds. I actually went to the first Twilio Signal conference, which was not the high production value it is now. And I created a contact center in front of the audience in 60 seconds and had them all call it. And the first call I answered, I threw them as Zendesk t-shirt. That actually was a great way to go. As it scaled out, it turns out that you can't support 100 agents on a DSL line in Argentina. You actually have to get into the basics of your network and all these other things, and the selling process becomes more difficult. But that was a great way to start that business, and we've grown it since and developed expertise. Chat, we actually built session-based chat that goes on the website with a widget. We had a widget for help already on the website. It was a natural extension, same buyer. And so we built a nascent chat product in 2011, basically looked at what other people were building their chat products with, had an engineer or two come up with something and built it. Then as we unpacked it, we just realized just how big and complicated it was as a process and that we were behind. And we had three or four partners doing great business in the Zendesk ecosystem, selling to our customers through our app store. And we looked at them and evaluated them. And we bought a company called Zopim that was based in Singapore just before our IPO came with bunch of expertise, a lot of new customers because they had their own motion, their own self-serve business. They also did chat for sales on the website, not just chat for support, which was important to us at the time. We thought that would be a, a really good asset to have and a business to grow. And we wanted to diversify where we were hiring developers and our developer centers and establish a presence in Asia. So it ticked a bunch of boxes and we brought that product in. It was a great product. We scaled it as an acquisition. Two years in, it, we were probably from a book of business point of view, making every year what we paid for the whole company, which is great. That's when acquisitions work like that, it's tremendous. And I think with that one, killing our internal product and acquiring was the right move. It's always interesting to think about the mistakes. I wish we'd integrated the technology stacks earlier, but we were more interested in running the business and not putting any kind of headwinds into the growth of that business. Shifting feature developers from new stuff that customers were asking for, or stuff for ever larger and larger customers and use cases that were coming in versus stabilizing and putting on our platform. Hindsight's twenty twenty. I wish we'd done that earlier. Those are the two core other products. The other product that we have, Guide, which is our self-service knowledge base, FAQ and community. That product was completely homegrown and has continued to be homegrown. It's developed in Copenhagen by a great and incredibly tenured team. And we've just built on that. But those, I think, are the core extension products. And what we've changed there really is the way that we think about pricing. And I mentioned, are they independent things that we sell that are independent motions? Or are they part of a suite? Because our customers, that's that economic buyer we talked about is trying to buy a single contact center that solves his, his or her chat, self-service, and voice needs, as well as being a ticketing engine in the CRM. As we've gone from a sweet emphasis to individual emphasis, each of which have their advantages, we've seen those products grow and shrink. You mentioned a couple of the examples of the new products or business lines that have worked really well. You've chosen to acquire, integrate, and then scale. 
Is there anything that you did or have become opinionated about to make those acquisitions exceptionally successful? It tends to be more likely that a company acquires a new product or adjacency and it doesn't work or it doesn't get to the scale that they had hoped. And so it sounds like in a couple of the instances, it worked just exceptionally well. Curious what you did or how you approached it. I conveniently forgot to mention the ones where it didn't. Exactly. (laughs) Naturally. We actually bought, for a bunch of different reasons, a YC graduate company in San Francisco. And one of the mistakes that it was really easy to make in a cooperative process is say, we like this company because we want the tech and the team and we're going to integrate it into our offering, whatever it is, into chat support, some stuff we want to do around messaging. We're going to integrate it. And then we're going to keep the business going. The way that we describe that is like, yeah, we acquired a BI tool, for example, based in Montpellier in the south of France. It was a going concern with an ongoing business. A lot of French customers, a lot of European customers, but basically for a cloud BI implementation. And and we were going to use it as our, and it is now Zendesk Explore, use it as our implementation for BI. And it was an expensive acquisition for us at the time, but it was really, really important. What is more important than the data about your customers and how you report them on them and how you analyze the operation that you run? In that corp dev justification deck, talked about, well, we can keep the existing business going comes with a sales team. We can apply some Zendesk juice to the marketing. It'll be great. It turns out that wasn't our DNA. That independent product wasn't what we were going to sell. We were going to sell customer analytics on top of your CX implementation where the majority of the data initially was first party. It came from Zendesk. And then you eventually could bring in second party and marry it through extensions to one of the products or directly importing that data and build really powerful customer dashboards. We should have focused on that because you've got to stick to your knitting. That's our business and that's what we wanted to do. We didn't really want to be in the BI business, but it's easy to make that calculation. We made a similar mistake when we acquired the YC company, the market automation company, Outbound IO, where we got basically a CDP stack, customer data platform stack, and the ability to talk to segment and target and trigger customers. And I still am a passionate believer in the need for proactive views in your customer experience be able to say, okay, this is Adrian. He owns these products. He recently bought this one. He's probably calling about that. Let's trigger him on that and ask that question and not have him go through the 70 steps to get to the point where we figure out what he's calling about. Those kind of things I think are really important. And there's there's still a ton of work to be done in that space to build great and simple implementations that are understandable. And I think we're still passionate about working on it. But again, for that acquisition, We were running two stacks, one in Amazon, one in Google. It was too expensive. The transfer cost between the two for all of our data was going to cripple us. We didn't have all of the expertise we needed. It didn't come with a big enough team to be the kind of asset that we wanted it to be that wouldn't shrivel and die in Zendesk. And again, it wasn't our expertise or it was too early for it to be our expertise in terms of selling. From a framework point of view, as you look back, if you're making a tech and team, and you don't really, really want to be in that business, you've got to kill the product. You can't rate that revenue. You have to take it out the back and shoot it in the back of the head and disappoint the customers. We recently acquired an AI company called Cleverly, Cleverly Cleverly.ai. They're based in primarily in Lisbon, Portugal. Almost all of their customers were Zendesk customers. They provide just some fantastic 
intent identification to ticket classification calls tools for customer service super important in the customer service ai business to be able to take any kind of input decorate it with intent extract the core concepts from it and then they had a taxonomy of this is a, which basically would take a question from a customer down a series of flows basically using a machine learning model that would be like okay this person wants to do a return this person is calling about billing this person is you know yada 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 and great asset but they had sold products based on that to 8 to 10 customers we've made it our goal we i think which is right based on our learnings to basically discontinue those products but replace them eventually with zendesk implementations we acquired it in the summer the first reimplementation that's a zendesk implementation that's our technology that's not in our app store has gone live as a beta and the rest will follow and i think that's good use of learning for us and a good model we didn't want to be in that separate ml tool business we wanted to be in the zendesk business but we wanted to have it cover those features and that functions on your point about the story when you acquired the company to help you build the chat part of your product, you mentioned that you had a small team and you started to work on it and it quickly became clear that it was a much more complicated product and or problem. I was interested in kind of exploring that a bit because it feels like one of those things that, you know, you're in a meeting and you're like, ah, oh, customers want to chat with their customers. And then it would intuitively feel like, oh, we have a few people go build it for a month or two and we'll be good to go. And it sounds like then you start to poke at some of these problems and you realize the amount of detail and complexity. So I was interested in what found in that example or how that informs how you think about how complicated or hard it might be to build anything across the product suite. Yeah, good question. I think the example and the key thing that changed in chat was email is asynchronous. Voice is synchronous, but we were using APIs that managed those channels pretty well. But it also exposed a bunch of latency in our product that we took a long time and have done a lot of work to fix. And then chat is a highly synchronous thing where you're maintaining these connections. It's not like rendering a rich app and then someone asks for something and you go through the refresh cycle. It's like you have to be online the entire time using WebSockets and push information to users and have typing indicators and how complete your product is, is measured against the giants of the consumer internet and the things that they've put in their product. That's a high bar for three engineers learning what eJabbaD is. And so we realized pretty soon that someone who had put the 10,000 hours in to build this real-time system that could scale to 3,000 agents and a ride-sharing company online at once in China, you're not going to grow that overnight. And organizations can only grow so fast. Creating a new product, I do think, takes time. It takes time to learn where the bodies are going to be buried and where they are buried, what the wrinkles are on it. And I could see that for a real-time chat at scale, there was a lot to that problem. We didn't want to experiment on our customers because if you're running a thousand person help desk for someone and then you go, hey, we've got a chat product and they turn it on and you know suddenly our servers start melting or there's all these things that we haven't thought about, you're damaging the value of your core asset. You're damaging the value of the Zendesk support licenses that they're paying for because it's reputationally, it really hurts. And so it was important to get people who are experts in this field who have built this thing, who have scaled this thing and dealt with customers and apply that DNA and that thinking to it. We could have built it, absolutely. You can hire engineers to do anything. I remember having a conversation with a great engineer 
a guy called Michael Smedberg about something. And he's like, obviously, I could do that and I could build that, but that might not be the most efficient way. It's like if you asked me to translate the website into Chinese, I could absolutely learn the Chinese language and translate it, but it could be better that you find someone else to do that who natively speaks Chinese. And I think about Michael's example sometimes when I'm asking people to do something which is not just outside of their comfort zone. It's like, there are people who do this for a living and they'd be doing it for a living for a long time. You might want to go buy or rent some of that expertise. Something that sort of popped into my head that we haven't really talked about is how you define or think about what it means to build or have a truly great product and how that definition changes as a company scales. I'm constantly thinking about products that I think a lot of people don't think are great, but the companies are at extraordinary scale. And in a certain definition, I actually do think the products are great. So like classic examples would be people complain about Salesforce, people complain about Atlassian products and on and on and on. But at the same time, I actually think that they are actually truly great in a particular definition. LinkedIn, there are many, many examples of these products. How do you think about what a great product is or in what ways does that matter? The Zendesk, the product was three years old and they just hired 10 engineers to augment the two technical co-founders when I started. The perspective I didn't have at the time that I've thought a lot about since is what made that product successful and what made it great. It is also true in some of your examples of quote unquote bad products where Zendesk at the time when you basically hit start trial, unboxed it as it were, it showed you how to do digital customer support. The product came with eight triggers and two automations that laid out the flow of a customer service conversation. You send me an email, you will get a response back through the trigger right away saying, we're looking at it. I look at it, it will assign it to me. I look at it, I respond, it will send something to you. If I solve it, it will sit there in a solved state for three days and then it will be closed. Or if you respond, it will be reopened, right? Those things were codified in the product. And there were tons of examples of things that had built up over time. And we built up more, which were like, this is how you do digital customer service. We have taken a position on it. We have an opinion. This is what you do. I see those things very much encoded into JIRA. This is how you run a trouble ticket system, which is really, really useful for engineers. I mean, yes, there are quirks of those UIs and of the UIs of all those products and usability issues. But I think the power has come from really taking an opinion on how it is done and then doubling down on it until it almost becomes the lingua franca of its category, until it becomes the thing against which other things are mentioned and judged. Oh, you do it differently to Zendesk. Oh, that's interesting. Why do you do that? That's a conversation that you have to have with the customer because it's a point of friction because we are the model about how you do that for digital customer service. So I think great products at their core are opinionated on how they should be used. And that's okay. Maybe it's different for platform products, but I think for the SaaS products we were talking about, I think that is fundamentally important. And then, so everything that you build, you, I think, have to have an opinion on how it should be used. It doesn't have to be an in-your-face opinion. It doesn't have to be that strong, but you should know what that purpose is. It's allied to the jobs-to-be-done framework in some ways, But it is a little bit different in that it is leading. And I think if you can do that, you're taking a lot of the thought processes and decision processes out of using the product, figuring out how it works, doing all these other things. And it becomes comforting to turn on. 
And that is sort of culturally like simplify, 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 have a great first seven second experience, make it blindingly obvious how it works, why it works that way and why it should work that way. I think if you can keep doing those things, then you have a great product. Just my opinion. It's really interesting framing this idea about being opinionated and how that leads to these magic moments. I wonder how that maps as your company grows and scales its customer base. Because the story I tell myself about companies probably like Salesforce, Atlassian, and other just extraordinary companies is they often start out quite narrowly focused on a specific customer and tend to be more opinionated. And then as they want to go up market or expand, it ends up becoming harder and harder to become opinionated because everyone wants to do slightly different things. And that's when you get into an admin page that has like 72 settings that slowly get built up over time. And then you get to some scale and it's so complicated and so overbuilt because you're effectively trying to do all of these things for all these different customers. The thousand person customer is different than the 150 person customer, et cetera, et cetera. And so how do you maintain that kind of idea of bringing some point of view or being opinionated about the way in which the product should be used with the tension of wanting to get more and more probably different customers over time? Yeah, I I think that is the challenge of there are two trajectories for increasing your TAM, two main ones as a SaaS company, right? One is to go up market, one is to go down market. Zendesk is a go up market company. So we start with this opinionated product when we get into tough conversations with larger customers or even just more sophisticated, tiny customers, which is where you first notice this actually you have this challenge of flexibility. I'm not going to tell you where they are, but there are some horrendous admin pages in Zendesk that make my eyes bleed. (laughs) We're going to fix it. It's okay. But at the same time, I think it's important to realize that one of the words we're using a lot more internally is flexibility. I still am passionate about the discipline of shit works out the box. You turn it on, never seen it before, it works, and you can figure it out because it makes sense. I strongly believe that. And a significant portion of our business is self-service. Even our expansion inside of enterprises to multiple instances is effectively self-service in some ways, although it could be assisted. So that's just fundamental to what we do and will remain so. But that shouldn't be a straitjacket for your more sophisticated, quote unquote, larger customers and people who just need flexibility. That flexibility should be there You don't actually have to spoon feed people necessarily who are looking for flexibility. If the answer for one of our customers is API, you better make sure those APIs, that should always be your get out of jail card. You can write an app for that, deploy it on the sidebar. You can use this API and do that. They might roll their eyes, raise their eyebrows and say, well, I have to work on that. Okay. But at the same time, you've obfuscated that complexity from the rest of the users because it is an edge case. Where it is not an edge case, start building that flexibility into the product so that it can be a low-code implementation so that the citizen developer can access it, not just the functioning developer. And if you're enabling for citizen developers who can click and have some sophistication, then progressive disclosure is what you need. And you can use plans to keep that out of certain packages so that not everyone has to see it. But it's there if you need it and you can go find it. This is the classic problem of permissions and security and roles and management and these kind of things. And you have to put that stuff into your product. And when you do a good job with progressive disclosure with a good zero state that can be transformed flexibly, I think you can serve the bifurcated customer classes of upmarket, downmarket, of small or big, or sophisticated, not as sophisticated, of developer first, low code first. And all those personas are important when you have 170,000 customers. 
Can you explain in a little bit more detail what do you mean by progressive disclosure? That admin page that wounds my inner child, why does it look like that? And what is the mistake being made? I think the mistake being made is that all of those settings and functions and behaviors are treated as peers in terms of importance when they are not. Whoever made them took craft and time in some ways to make that radio button, the the language, they used a content strategist to make that radio button tag as understandable as possible, et cetera, et cetera. Core admin could have just been a set of configured defaults for all of those settings that you could have chosen. I want this type of admin, please make all the settings work for that type of admin in a security example. Show me what groups should look like and I'll take them. I want to click a button and this is a feature we just added, right? Which I want an admin that can just handle billing, usage and agent addition problems, but doesn't have access to the rest of the core admin keys to the kingdom and can open the admin tabernacle and do all of the core settings. Don't want to do that. Just want them to do billing. And, you know, you can put give that to your finance people and it's fine. I think that that's the sort of clever defaulting progressive disclosure that you have. But then you give someone the ability to crack open the box and drag a few things around and make those setting changes or create new roles. But you create those new roles off in a different place and you have a custom role thing. And yes, it's probably more steps to do the obtuse action. But that's okay as long as it's as long as it remains clear and it's understandable. One of the things that overlays this topic that's been interesting, I think, in looking at your background and your story at Zendesk is that at times you've led all of product, at times you've led engineering, at times I think you've led both under one combined title. And I'm interested in how each role has informed the way that you think about the other. So like wearing the product hat, in what way does that inform the way that you think about your role and job as an engineering leader. As an engineering leader, in what ways does it inform your job as a product leader? Because in most scaled organizations, you tend to have some sort of product lead and or product function, and then a separate engineering lead and an engineering function. And most of those people have only done that role. A product person came up on the product side, an engineering person, engineering leader, CTO, et cetera, VPNG came up on, under the engineering side. And so I was curious in what ways have they informed the way that you think about the respective job? Yeah. So I started as the VP of engineering. And then after a few months, I shifted the VP of product in the Zendesh Shows and took over product. And I ran it then for 10 years, both of them, actually. I'd run product before. I actually was a GM and ran a sales unit in a startup that I worked for, where I was busy losing money for first round. And as I've done both of those things, I think that the empathy and the customer insight that you get from being in product and being out on the front lines and channeling that and communicating that. Like I think the the head of X job in so many ways, like definitely the head of product and head of engineering is really about being a highly paid router. It's about being a filtering amplifier for the things that you see and the insights that you get from them and then repeating them over and over again in your organization and getting people to understand them and have the same level of empathy. And that's, you know, as basic as what does it mean to that guy at Groupon when the site is down? What does it mean for him to have a thousand people that he's paying in a room in Berlin who are sitting there idle? It's career hurting for him in terms of he will not progress in his job or in that company. People have to hear those stories and hear about the true cost of things that they do or why our customers are so passionate about certain features or how things are going to be used or getting people excited about the new and interesting ways that you see startups or existing companies using our product. 
being able to personalize the stories of importance and being able to communicate, I think, is key to running engineering. So if you're not the engineering person running product, you need to be talking to customers and you need to be thinking about the business in that way. You need to be going out on sales calls. You need to be going out on customer successfuls, not just to apologize. The acts of contrition and forelock tugging after an outage is sometimes the only time that you're ahead of engineering or service talks to customers. And that's a mistake. All of your engineers need to be seeing and experiencing what the product people should be seeing, experiencing too. They should be speaking to customers every day and doing that. A product growth-led business or an enterprise business with assisted selling, I think you are in danger of sitting in your bunker and developing. And I think that is a very hard thing to do well. You have to be getting out there. And then if you're a leader, you have to be communicating and over-communicating your experiences until people are bored of hearing you, frankly. You touched on this a little bit, but what about the inverse? What is your role as an engineering leader? In what way has that informed your role as a product leader? Engineering leaders, good ones, which I may not be, I think what they do is they inject a level of realism into the ambition. A product development organization's reach should exceed its grasp, but not by too much. People want dependability and they want delivery. And having the ability to understand what is hard and what is not, and that could be calling kind of bullshit on something the CEO is asking for because it's actually really difficult. And it's one of those, if we build that, it will be a face tattoo. It will be there in front of us forever and we'll never be able to get rid of it. And being able to sort of say that with the confidence because you know all of the decisions all the way down and what they're going to impact is really important. And then a core problem, I think, in most organizations with separated engineering and product orgs is the amount of time that goes into keeping your internals clean, keeping them under control, housekeeping, refactoring. If you need to take a timeout, we were in Engine Yard, the Ruby on Rails hosting company, and we were asked for more capacity in the database because we were hitting the limit every Monday morning when Twitter users came online. And they were like, yeah, no, that's the biggest machine we have. And so we moved data center and did that. And that was like everyone down tools. What you're doing is less important than this. We're moving. And then we did the same thing, actually, when we moved into AWS a couple of years later. And being able to make those core decisions of everyone down tools, this is what we're going to do. It's incredibly important. And respecting the ongoing investment. I think where I've succeeded, I've been sensitive to that and kept it moving because nothing is more important in some ways than the health of your application. Your book of business is paying you to run that service. They're not paying you for the quality of your spreadsheets or the beauty of your designs. They're paying you to run that service make sure that you're fixing bugs in it and they're paying you for upgrades and new features. That's SaaS. Whatever the function, you need to remember that. And I think having been on the engineering side, it gives me a little perspective on the cost of things and the importance of those investments. I wanted to switch gears and talk in a little bit more detail around some of the things that you figured out around go-to-market and maybe the intersection of product and go-to-market. I guess at a high level, In the last decade of bringing Zendesk to market, have there been step function changes in the way that you've thought about that or changes that you've made that have had a surprising impact? You gave one very small example of the difference between having a human involved in adding seats versus allowing people to do it self-serve. You've built a really interesting go-to-market engine. Are there crystallized insights that may be useful to others that are starting to bring products to market? One of the key insights that I learned 
the hard way early on is just how difficult it is to change or influence the behavior of that cohort of the people who are out there selling. They get a number. The number is basically sort of a 90-day challenge to your existence at the company is one way that you could think about it. And they internalize that, work towards it, take it super seriously. That is the metric for success. It's how they self-actualize. It's really important to them. It's how they are admired by their peers. And then they apportion their time. So new things are generally not seen as, oh, great, new stuff. In my experience, they're more likely seen as, oh, great, distraction. I'm going to ignore that until it has traction and then I'll start selling it. And so there was a program that the general manager of voice put in place, which I thought was really good, where he noticed that of our total sales force, some small single digit percentage of the account executives were responsible for the majority of voice sales. And he's like, everyone else If they've never done one, they aren't going to do one. So he invented the Voice Virgins program, where he took a couple of his experts on his staff, and he's like, ring the bell when you have a voice prospect, and we will SWAT team in and help you get through this first sale. And they basically dedicated a ton of effort to this to get as many people as possible. And I think there was a spiff attached as well, because, you know, there's always a spiff. (laughs) to get everyone to the point where they had sold voice once. And so the Voice Virgins program, as I remember, was tremendously successful because the people who sold it once, fear was taken out of it. They realized it wasn't that much effort. They realized that there were people they could call if the questions were too technical or they didn't know the answer. They found out where the competitive info was in the internal systems and yada, yada, yada. And then they went out and they did it again and they did it again and they did it again. And from an enablement point of view, when your go-to-market is set up, you found product market fit, it runs like a flywheel, but it's very much running on repetition. It's running on familiarity. Those salespeople, are, you don't see it, but they're self-qualifying out of things that are too much work. I, as the head of product, might be like, we should totally win that deal. This is the thing that we should do. It'd be great if we could get that name. It'd be great if we could get them using this product, blah, blah, blah. That person is like putting it in the too hard basket and moving on to something else. I could sell five agents down the street. I can do this other smaller tactical thing. My time is better spent there. And so you need to take a really empathetic view of how they're gold and the goals that they're given. Spiffs are not enough. And I think you need to put the effort in to change behavior. It's changing those behaviors and incenting people differently that moves the company along and eventually changes the growth trajectory. Great. So I thought we could wrap up just by talking a little bit about team building and recruiting. It's something we haven't spent that much time talking about. And you have such an interesting lens over the past 11 plus years from 50 to 5,000. And so I'm curious, what are the things that you've learned that other people might not know about or maybe even disagree with in terms of hiring or interviewing or finding the right people for your company at a given point in time? Philosophically, I often say this in interviews, or I certainly used to when we were definitely a startup. A startup for an employee and for an employer is basically a Faustian bargain where you sell your labor to me. You are the means of production for this business in engineering. And in return, you tell me what it is you want to do next, what your next step in your career is, and I will make sure that I am preparing you for that to the extent that I can. Employees' labor is on loan to you. You don't own it. It's not your asset, it's theirs. 
It's a SaaS product they're renting to you every month, basically. Making sure that as a management and development thing, everyone understands that connection and that bargain and that people are being prepared for the next thing is extremely important. Secondly, I interviewed a thousand engineers probably in the first few years of Zendesk. And I went in and I asked them all exactly the same whiteboard question, run length encoding. And I realized after a while, maybe it was at number 300, maybe it was earlier than that. I realized that I wasn't listening to the answer or looking at it. It was a ritual where I was just looking at how they reacted to the question, how they held the pen, what their thought process was. Some days I would have had too much coffee. I'd be like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? What, how's it going? Are you done yet? Because, you know, I can be incredibly annoying. Other days I was sort of like, hey, how's it going? You know, what are we going to do? And I think pattern recognition is really important. And I got to recognize patterns in terms of how people would cope with that and what they would do and other things. And that's why I also think for hiring engineers, like there's nothing like pair coding. Some people refuse to do the exercise. Like, yeah, I don't really do well at whiteboards. I'm like, all right, I respect that. If you were going to do it, what would you do? And talking about method in that way. On the point that you made about interviewing, call it a thousand engineers, you touched on this, what you learned about the whiteboarding exercise. I'd just be interested, are there other parts of the way that you actually interviewed that you found gave you particularly high signal or things that you thought mattered that didn't? Because the great thing is you got to interview a thousand people, hire a portion of those, and then see who thrived in your company and who didn't. And so are there any things when you go down to that detail level that you found to be extremely effective or maybe not effective? Mistakes wise, I always overemphasize background. Probably one of the best engineers we ever hired had no degree, had odd shoes on, went out for a smoke in the middle of the interview, but he was extraordinary. And he was extraordinary because he made other people better and because he really cared. No, he wasn't the archetypal antisocial genius who brought everybody else down. He actually made everybody else better, which is, for me, the quality I look for in great people. I got comfortable with not worrying too much about what they'd done before, where they'd worked before, where they went to school. These things in the long term aren't good predictors of outcome or success, frankly. They're reasonable, but they're not the best. It's more about EQ to a certain extent and care and passion. And I've always thought that people with really diverse interests in terms of, you know, the DJs we've hired and the creators and the makers we've hired have brought something delightful to the culture. And it was often indicative of the fact, certainly early on, that they were going to make this outsized contribution to the way that the company operated and to the culture of the company. Great. So to wrap up, my last question is one that I always like to ask, which is when you think about your role as a product leader, engineering leader, company builder, who or maybe what two or three other people have had an outsized impact on you and your success? And maybe what did they teach you or in what way did they make you better? I think one of my key early influences, the first startup I worked at was a company called Plumtree. I spent 10 years there, actually, it was through IPO and then acquisition by BEA until the acquisition by Oracle. I worked with a bunch of really brilliant people that I'm still friends with, including Jay Simons, who you had on this podcast. At one point, I was running engineering and he was running marketing post-acquisition. And I think there, one of the founders, Glenn Kelman, who's now the CEO of Redfin, was a big influence. It was on-prem, but it was an enterprise software company. And just the way that he thought about customers and strategy and competition and the market and building product, that was where I learned my craft. 
I went from engineer to senior engineer to manager, director, VP of engineering to running it at the BEA acquisition. I took a lot from that experience in terms of what it takes to be a leader, how to show up, how to, the term I use is shit umbrella. The people below you don't need to know what's going on above you or what's going on in your life. That's for you and you alone. They pay you to be a leader to project out not only good things, but keep some of the chaos from your employees. Your job is to help them clear the way for them to do a better job and move forward, not to involve them in your politics or the squabbles of the management. That was formative for me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing. This was an awesome conversation. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.